1: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Our guest today is Simon Gleeson, who's a partner at Clifford Chance. This week, we'll be doing an extended show focused on Brexit and its implications for the City of London, foreign banks here, and the UK banks as well. First, give us the overview, Martin. There's been a pretty dramatic market response to last Thursday's vote that the UK should exit the EU. And obviously, part of that story has been some of the real dramatic falls in the share prices of some of the city banks. Yeah, not just the
2: city banks. European banks as a whole were down double-digit percentages on Friday and again on Monday. And they are back up a bit on Tuesday. But still, we're talking about very low levels of share prices and being hit by concerns about the economic impact of the referendum. The UK sovereign credit rating has been downgraded, so that indicates the level of concern about the economy. British banks have been hit, but the Italian banks' share prices have been hit almost as hard. And there's now talk about a potential government bailout fund, some kind of rescue fund being set up to stabilize the Italian banking sector because of wobbles in the European periphery as the Brexit vote reverberates. But um, there's also concern about what will happen to the city. Will there be job losses? Will some of the big UK based operations of foreign banks, the, the Wall Street banks, for instance, have to move into other EU countries as a result of loss of access to the single market?
1: Well, that's a perfect segue to bring in Simon Gleeson from Clifford Chance. Simon, thanks for joining us. You, I'm sure, are very busy with clients at the moment, so thank you very much for sparing the time to talk to us. But they, I'm sure, are frantically wondering how they need to restructure their operations in London if they're going to retain access to the EU single market because historically so many foreign banks have used London as a pivot into that single market. And if that's not going to be possible any longer through the disappearance of these so-called passporting rights, then they need to reconsider, am I right?
3: Well, that's exactly right, Patrick. The way that foreign banks have looked at this is there's a deep pool of skills in London. If you put your operation there, you also get to passport into Europe. So London simply became the default location for all of these activities. We will not get passports. It's perfectly clear from the way that Europe has dealt with the EA and Switzerland that you don't get a European passport unless you sign up for free movement, the full acquis communitaire, contributions to the budget, and all of the things that the UK has just raised against. So the real question for UK firms, I think, is whether the UK government will manage to negotiate some sort of quasi-passport based on the third country provisions in the existing directives. If it does so, what will that look like? Don't know. If it does so, when might they achieve that agreement? Answer, don't know. The uncertainties pile up. So at the moment... The banks in particular are having to make their decisions based on guesswork about where these discussions might end up at some point several years down the line, which isn't exactly contributing to comfort or stability.
1: Let me bring Caroline in just on the point of the way that these directives might work in future. As Simon says, Caroline, the idea of maintaining proper single market access is probably out of the question. So the optimists are clinging to the idea that under MIFID and this specific regulation called MIFIA, then there will be a way in which non-EU countries, i.e. the UK, can tap into this single market by claiming to have equivalent levels of regulation to the mainstream EU. Do you think that's feasible and likely to happen and to be exploited by the banks?
4: Well, I think legally it's possible, but as Simon says, there's so many uncertainties between now and 2018, which is when MIFID II actually takes effect, that it's very hard to say with any great certainty that that's possible. What the British people voted for is very different to what the British people can actually have in effect. And a lot of it does not depend on any of the UK politicians. It depends on what deal the EU is willing to give us. Also, obviously, they'll want to be quite hard-nosed about it to discourage others from trying to leave the EU. So, yes, it is broadly correct that under MIFID 2, you can get third-country passporting rights if you're considered an equivalent nation. But, again, it goes back to will we be deemed equivalent?
1: And, Simon, by equivalence, we're talking about, really, the levels of regulation in Britain being equivalent to those in the rest of the EU. Given that we have the same rules and regulations at the moment, it would seem like it should be an automatic effect that we are deemed equivalent. But I suspect it's not as easy as that.
3: Well, you know, the problem really is this. On the day that the UK leaves the EU, it won't be equivalent. It'll be identical. So if the question was simply, are you equivalent today, then the answer would be a clear yes. However, if you're a bank, that's pretty useless to you unless you can also be confident that the UK will continue to be equivalent tomorrow. A form of equivalence that could disappear at a moment's notice is just not a safe basis for an institution to do its long term planning on. So in order for equivalence to work properly, in addition to the rules being equivalent, you would also need some sort of formal commitment by the UK to maintain equivalence, so to implement new European financial legislation as it was passed in Europe. And again, I think you bang up against the problem that that, I think, is the very thing that the British people have just voted not to do. And in the absence of that commitment then it's hard to see how we could get a particularly useful form of equivalence. Given your scepticism on all of that,
1: how are you advising your clients to proceed?
3: Well, I mean, the problem the clients have is that they will effectively have to make their plans well in advance of knowing what the problem is that they're trying to solve. So there is a lot of worst case analysis going on out there at the moment, all of which, takes you to the conclusion that it looks as if at least some part of what is currently done in London is in future going to have to be done somewhere within the remainder of the EU. So most of the discussion is how big is that part? How significant is it? What are the drivers? Where do we go? All those sorts of issues. But these are all very hard questions. And I don't think there's anybody who claimed today that they had a coherent set of answers to them.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's two sides to this. I mean, I've been speaking to lots of banking executives in the last few days and they are putting on a brave face and they're saying, you know, the EU needs the city as much as we need them. The share of our revenues that we get from doing cross-border business with EU clients is very small. We'll find a way there are entities that we can use. A lot of them are saying, you know, and they're downplaying it and putting a brave face on and hoping that somehow common sense will prevail and there will be a solution. But in terms of the city, it's already been losing jobs and activity as banks have been shifting to lower cost centres, this nearshoring trend of back office staff and activity being moved to lower cost places like Poland and Bulgaria, Scotland, Ireland, Portugal. The other issue is banks were already not in a great place. Returns on equity were well below their cost of capital, their share prices were already pretty beaten up. And so they need to keep cutting costs. And Brexit is going to be an opportunity for them to say, right, now we have to take more tough decisions. And I can see the city suffering as a result of that, whatever the outcome of these kind of negotiations.
1: Well, let me bring Laura in on this issue, because One of the theories says that there's going to be a fragmentation, really, of the city. Different banks are likely to go to different places or put some of their operations where they might already have branches and subsidiaries around the EU. Most obviously, I suppose, we're talking about Frankfurt and Paris and Dublin, but there will be other centres as well. What have you picked up in your reporting over the last few days?
5: I think it's fair to say that when you talk to the bankers who are in charge of the large international banks here, They're all unanimous in the fact that it will be impossible to go and replicate what they have here in the city anywhere else. So they do see it being spread across a number of different cities, a number of different countries. In the case of some banks, they think that their own operations are going to be scattered across several countries. There are good arguments for keeping certain parts of the business together. So you want to keep the trading floor and the investor services people in the same building. You don't necessarily need to keep all of the people in the same building, though. So to the extent that you have different kinds of businesses you can definitely put those in different locations. Because if you think of the size of all of those cities, like Dublin, Frankfurt, Paris even, they just don't have the capacity to take the kind of numbers of people who are inevitably going to end up leaving London. So it is definitely going to become a more fragmented thing and that will have both pros and also cons. You would have a lower risk from having things spread across a number of sites and you will also have a lower cost base ultimately because London is a very expensive centre And almost all of the other alternatives are in some way cheaper to London. The cons are obviously if you are dispersed across a number of different countries, you have the complexity of regulation, even though you have the ECB sitting at the very top, you have different teams for different countries. You have to worry about the local laws and the languages. So it does introduce an element of complexity to the business as well.
1: Simon, if I could bring you in as a final word on this. First of all, do you agree with what our FT panel have said on all of these things? And where would your pick be in terms of the big winner? Are you a Frankfurt aficionado or do you believe Paris or Dublin are likely to be the bigger winners?
3: I'm not sure winner is the right word. I mean, really, there are only losers in this business. One of the interesting things is that in order for any of those cities to move a substantial number of people, they need to be attractive places to live. Some are and some aren't. You know, I mean, a good rule of thumb is would you go there for a weekend, a test which arguably rules out Frankfurt, for example. But the other big thing, and I think this is quite important, is that this is a decision that will be taken by individual people and their preferences as much as by big institutions and their business plans. One of the problems I think the city is facing at the moment is what we could describe as an emigration problem. The UK has just become a significantly more uncomfortable place for non-Brits to come and live and work. And certainly people here today are starting to wonder whether they'll be welcome tomorrow and whether they shouldn't be thinking of moving elsewhere. If we end up with a significant outflow of talented people from the city, then actually what will happen will be that the business follows those people to wherever they choose to go.
1: And you've dodged the question nicely, but where do you think that might be? (laughs)
3: I think it's very hard to say, but I think it'll be all of them. Some of them will move to Frankfurt. Some of them will move to Paris. Some of them will unquestionably move to Madrid and Milan. I think what we're going to end up with is a much more fragmented and a much more distributed system in Europe than we have today. So, you know... To some him? extent, they are all winners as individuals and the European financial system in aggregate is a significant loser as a whole.
1: On that note, and with an assurance that you'll have plenty of work for the coming months and years, Simon, as you unpick all these complexities, my thanks to you. Well, let's move on to another perspective on the whole Brexit issue, which is what it means for the UK banks, because they have been, I think I'm right in saying the biggest direct victims of this in terms of share price falls, still down by between, uh, what, 20 and 30%. The big UK banks, including the ones that are still partly state owned. Emma, what's going on and why are they so badly hit, do you think?
6: Well, the UK's largest high street banks have been pummeled over the last couple of days, losing about £40 billion worth in value in two days alone. And this is the five biggest UK FTSE 100 listed banks. So the worst hit are Barclays, RBS and Lloyds. There are sort of three main reasons really why they've been so badly hit. For Barclays, it's quite closely correlated with Sterling, and obviously that's fallen to a 30-year low, so that's been a big hit for them. But they also have quite a big part of their group, I think more than 30% in risk-weighted assets in investment banking. And that's taken a hit as well because of assumed costs that they're going to need to foot for potentially bolstering business in Europe as a result of the loss of passporting rights. So that's been quite a big issue for Barclays. Another point is the corporate banking division, which is quite big in both Barclays and RBS. So that's taken a hit as well and suffered on the assumption that it will be tough and there's uncertainty as to how to serve corporate clients. You might need FX services and that sort of thing. And then the third, perhaps less direct issue at the moment is the ultimate impact on the UK economy for which banks are considered a proxy because of their mortgage lending and deposit taking business. So this has hit Lloyd's essentially as the biggest mortgage lender in the UK.
2: Yeah, Martin. Well, there's a couple of other things, of course. The expectation now is that there will be a monetary policy response to the fears of an economic downturn in the UK and that interest rates could be cut further rather quickly by the Bank of England and that will erode banks' profit margins even more. Worth saying,
1: as a kind of addendum to that point that given the overnight downgrade of credit ratings of the UK government, that will have a knock-on effect on the it funding costs for some banks as well. automatic
2: downgrade of the UK banks and therefore that is likely to push up the funding costs of the UK banks. So they are getting less revenue but they're having to pay more for their funding. So that is just going to be a double squeeze on their net interest margins, which are already being squeezed over the past few years with this very low interest rate environment. Another big complication, perhaps Emma, you could talk a bit about is the Scottish situation and the added complexity there, because Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the Scottish National Party, has said that they would like to do another referendum on independence from the UK. Which complicates the picture for some of the banks.
6: Well, if that were to occur, then I guess we'd see RBS dusting off its plans from last time with regards to where it's going to locate its headquarters, which are currently in Edinburgh. So they could and, potentially and move Lloyds. them
2: to and Clydesdale
6: right? uh, to London. Well, they've they've also got exposure in terms of lending as well. Clydesdale being the biggest, so Clydesdale, Lloyds, and RBS would all be affected.
1: It would be interesting to see whether Edinburgh, unlike last time, becomes now a magnet for those banks and other financial companies, particularly to relocate to. Just as a finish on this whole Brexit debate on our podcast for this week, there's a couple of other little, slightly more quirky angles I thought we could look at. Firstly, Caroline wanted to ask you about the European Banking Authority. Now, the EBA is the pan-EU regulatory body. It oversees, to an extent, the setting of rules and the policing of them, running stress tests, for example. Given that the UK has been the main non-Eurozone nation within the EU that has a big financial services industry. One of the raison d'etre of the EBA was to act as a kind of go-between between between the ECB as the single supervisory authority in the Eurozone and the broader EU. It's been based in London ever since it was created and its predecessor organisation was here. Will it stay here?
4: No, is the short answer. I think even pre-Brexit, a facetious question would be what is the point of the EBA? Because if you were designing European structures on a blank piece of paper, you probably would not have what were the old Lamfalussy committees, the EBA, ESMA and Paris, AOPA, for instance, as well as now this SSM supervisor within the ECB that is becoming all powerful. So yes, with the UK out of the picture, then the EBA as an intermediary between Eurozone and non-Eurozone countries obviously loses a bit of its raison d'etre, as you say, and I love that we need a French phrase to explain contextuality within the Brexit referendum. How appropriate, given that we've had French
1: policymakers suggest that French should become the lingua franca of the EU now.
4: A question as to where they would be based. Obviously, Protocol had it that because Paris has ESMA, the securities regulator, Aopa, I believe is in Germany then that is why EBA went to London also obviously because of the primacy of our banking sector at the time Andrea Enria who heads the EBA is Italian but he is not particularly well liked in his home country so a big question as to where the EBA going forward might be headquartered I think perhaps contingent on some of the earlier questions we were talking about as to where bankers might find themselves post-Brexit
1: good point and a final point to you Martin. Financial technology companies, fintech companies, they have used London as a big hub. This is one growing dimension to the city of London, really, the whole fintech hub, partly because there's funding available here, partly because there's a buzz around various parts of the capital, Shoreditch on the fringes of the city. What happens to that whole nascent industry?
2: Well, consensus of most people I've spoken to is it's not good. Some of the heads of the big UK fintech groups are putting a brave face on it and hoping that they can benefit from the woes of the big banks by taking more market share in online lending, replacing sort of high street bank lending. But I do think that issues around freedom of movement to people, I think that the talent issue is the big one. And Simon Gleason mentioned it earlier, that there is a feeling now that some of the non-UK people, hundreds of thousands of them who live and work in London, will not feel welcome. And they may decide to go and live somewhere else. And I've heard from fintech bosses that, you know, half of their staff are from Spain, Italy, Portugal, France, Germany, and they're living in the UK and- And they feel unwanted and they feel very insecure and they feel that they may not be welcome in the future and that that will be a problem for these big fintech groups who are trying to attract the best talent in terms of data analysts coders people who are in high demand trying to get them to convince them to come to the UK now could be difficult and that could have a real draining effect over time on London's aspirations to be the global hub for fintech
1: Well, we'll keep a close eye on that and all other aspects of the fallout from Brexit over the coming podcasts of the Banking Weekly. But in the meantime, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Caroline, Laura and Emma here in the studio, and also our guest, Simon Gleeson. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at Ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.